You can see my award-winning climate comedy show spoilers at a festival near you, provided you live near or are going to McHuncliffe or Wells Comedy Festivals. More dates added soon near you, conceivably, who knows what might happen. And if you are at Mac, come and see ComCom Redacted live at 4pm on the Saturday. Go to stuartgoldsmith.com and click the very attractive banner image to find out more. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a -a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hello and welcome to the show. I'm Stuart Goldsmith and if you can hear some background noise you might be able to faintly hear some uh, barely recognisable R&B I think in the background. Um, That's because I am backstage at the Hot Water Comedy Club in Liverpool where I've been enjoying a fantastic weekend of gigs here and I'm very pleased to say that whilst I was here I managed to snag not only brilliant comic Marcus Birdman but also the phenomenon that is Paul Smith. So we've got two cracking episodes in the can with those guys uh, racked up ready to come out in the next few weeks um i am taking advantage of this you know you know in the way that we're all trying to do 10 things at once these days so while i'm away from home i'm like right i'm gonna do all we have been gonna get a load of podcasts gonna do a bunch of gigs and also record some blurbs well here we are Ladies and gentlemen, I'm thrilled today to be bringing you an episode with Ahir Shah, someone I've been aware of for a long time. Uh, I've not gigged with him quite as often as, as uh, many of my contemporaries. I guess I'm a, at a stage now when someone like Ahir, I think of him as very much a newer comic, which is preposterous because he's done, as you'll hear, what, seven, eight hours at Edinburgh? He's been... He's been cracking on in no uncertain terms. Award nominated, uh, celebrated. Just in the last couple of years, he's really started to break through and get lots of traction. And his material has been, it's always been intelligent. And now, as you will hear, he, he delights in taking big, big political and philosophical ideas. And I mean, I don't want to give too much away unless you've read the show notes, but um, he has such a good analogy for what he does with those ideas to package them up, in, to reduce them, compress the air out of them and turn them into zingy, pithy, short jokes, which nonetheless say a great deal. So with thanks to the Angel Comedy Club at the Bill Murray in uh, Angel in London for uh, their recording space, this is Ahir Shah. Why don't we start with your voice, Ahir? Yes. You have, a, uh, you have the voice that you have. Tell me about your voice. Yes, it's, it's a curious one. Uh, so basically... Uh, uh, Sort of every year in the Edinburgh show, I have to have something about it near the top just to explain, mm-hmm. like, the sheer incongruity of uh, what's going on, or rather the perceived incongruity uh, of the distance between me being a brown man and sounding like I've been colonised by my own voice, <laughs> yeah, as I uh, yes. generally have it. Um, but, yeah, it, it is genuinely, like, the story that I tell in stand-up is the truth. It's like, basically, when... And this happened, like, it's not an uncommon thing among uh, first-generation immigrant communities, but it's because... When 
when my grandparents brought my mother and their other children over here, they banned them from speaking Gujarati outside of the house and told them that they had to speak in this sort of received pronunciation accent in an effort to assimilate generally. And so it's like that thing that a generation ago became affect, or sorry, was affect, then through the decades just became the way that mum speaks and and that then eventually became the way that I speak. So why haven't I heard anyone else who is a brown man (laughs) speaking with your specific accent? Why, why so much so in your case? There are there are a few. I've met I've met a few others uh, who sound like me. Perhaps not in comedy, um, but yeah. I like think is it is it unusual amongst British probably, Asians? Like I, I get the I understand the origin. Yeah. But is, did your family? Did your parents particularly go hard with it? I think my particularly the influence of my grandfather probably had a big thing because he was very much one for sort of like staid appearances were very important, very okay. small C conservative uh, man. So I think it made sense that he wanted his family and stuff to kind of go in that way. Okay. Um, but yeah, I, th- I think like for me, it was always a certain way. And then when I went to university and there were lots of fancy white people probably started going. Uh, Great description more, of Cambridge. Yeah. There were, there were <laughs> lots, a lot of of, fancy lots of fancy white people. <laughs> yeah. It's just like, Holy shit, I really am in a minority. I had no idea. Like, yeah. Well, I grew up in uh, London and in Wembley, and so my high school was the local comp and was just, you know, like third Indian, Pakistani, uh, that sort of area, third Afro-Caribbean, yeah. third sort of everything else. Yeah. Uh, and so none of us ever felt that we were members of a particular minority until we either watched television or went outside the area that we lived and all of our friends lived. So it was only in the later teens that I was like, oh, right, that's what people are talking about when they say ethnic minority. Really? Talk to me about the the very beginning. Let's get further into that. That's fascinating. Because, I mean, and it's one of those things, as soon as you hear it, you go, oh, well, obviously. Yeah. But before hearing it... Oh yeah, I wouldn't have expected that at all. So what did that what did that feel like to re- I mean, you must have had a sense beforehand. You you said that's what people are talking about when they say minority. Yeah. Um so like you were you were sort of aware that in inverted commas this thing of being an ethnic minority existed. Okay. And what have you, but that was never your just visual lived experience, right? Because if you know, say I'm 11 and my Mondays to Fridays are I'm at school with a bunch of other people who are also in inverted commas ethnic minorities but there are so many sure. and of such equal proportions that it doesn't feel like that yeah. it's like if anything it's the white English people who there are very few of yeah. here and then at the weekends where am I going like I'm, I'm 11 years old I'm seeing like my grandma or something like mm-hmm. I'm not and once again in a very South Asian part of Northwest London because she lived in Alperton uh, or lives in Alperton um so, yeah, you, you just don't, like, you don't visually see it in much the same way that if you, and I've been a lifelong Londoner, uh, if I'd never left London, and obviously I do travel around extensively through the job um, mm. and stuff, but if I'd not left London, I would just not be conscious of the fact that the demography of London were different to the rest of the country, right? Okay, yeah, sure. So when you went to Cambridge, was that kind of a big moment for you, realising... Was that a moment of realisation or was it prior to that? I think I'd clocked before then because sort of in my late teens uh, made friends with people who were at, like, from other parts of London and at different sorts of schools. And so as a result of that became a bit more aware of it. But still, the the sheer extent 
you only realise uh, when you're sort of in a place where people from all over um, are. And then, and then travelling around with this as well, I think one of the great shames is that a lot of people don't get to see a great deal of the country that they actually live in, which yeah. we are very lucky to be able to do. I, I think but, of that all the time. I forget mm. it and I keep re-noticing that, oh, God, I'm incredibly geographically well-versed. Yeah, because, <laughs> yeah. So, for example, my sister has travelled all around the world, like very mm. extensively internationally travelled person, but as would be fairly normal, other than London, where she grew up and now lives, and... She was at uni in Warwick, and then my brother-in-law's family lived near Wolverhampton, so she goes there, and she's been to, like, a few when she was younger, just where boyfriends' families Mm -hmm. were from and what have you. But other than that, like, why would you? Like, we just sometimes go to Leeds on a Thursday. Yeah, sure. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, in a way that people don't do, because it's enormously inconvenient. Yeah. Yeah, why would you? Yeah. So did you experience much racism, given that you were in a less ethnically diverse group or less... What's the, what's the terminology for fewer white people around? Uh, I think that there was almost certainly, like... There were bits, but it was just sort of like... At school, certainly, it was just sort of childhood needling of one another, and we were all sort of in the sort of non-dominant group. Sure. Vast, like, in a wider social context and everything. Uh, so you were never really able to punch down in a huge way uh, <laughs> yeah, when uh, we were kids. And then sort of have become more aware of it sort of as I've got older, principally through moving in different sorts of spaces and travelling as yeah. much as I have. Yeah. Uh, but I feel as though, like, generally speaking, I, th- I think that if I lived where I lived, worked in the same place somewhere in London on a nine-to-five uh, generally, then I probably wouldn't be personally that aware yeah. Of it, I would be sort of in a wider sense aware. Sure, um, sure, because it strikes me that your crusade, if you like, throughout comedy—maybe <laughs> that's a terrible term—but <laughs> <laughs> your mission in comedy, your your uh, uh, your way of making meaning in comedy, is less to do with political change. You do cover politics, obviously, but it's it feels more philosophical, and I'm wondering whether that is because of a particular way in which you grew up? Well, I I don't really know. So I think that I I wouldn't describe myself as a political comedian. I have in the past done shows, and one particular show that was very intensely political, uh, and that was the 2017 one, and because that was the first one that was nominated for the award and what have you and did quite well, uh, that sort of got... Oh, that's what that guy does. Sure. Um, which sort of put me in a box for a little while, which but, I, but then I, I also really like. In, in the Facebook group, uh, the ComCon Facebook group, I recently posted a video I dug up of yours online whilst researching yeah. you, of you 10 years ago, frankly looking like it was 30 years ago. And you were talking, like, I, I don't know how old you were. It was this, 17. Do you, do you remember this? You were yeah. 17. Yeah. And you were talking about politics. You were talking about wanting to change the world. You were talking about... Yeah. No, I've now... You were, you were about to go to Cambridge and you were concerned in the video, in the interview, you were concerned that at Cambridge they would spot that really you wanted to be a comedian yeah. whilst you were ostensibly there to study politics. Yeah, but it turned out that that wasn't that much of an issue because lots of people ended up going there because they wanted that, to be yeah, comedians. Sure. <laughs> but, yeah, like, I think that generally speaking, I'm trying to do it, and once again, as you have um, as you have told me, your favourite parts are always the parts where someone's about to go, and this is going to sound pretentious, <laughs> uh, so let's do one of them quite early on, sure. why not? Um, but I think particularly when you're 
the type of comic who, the second you walk out, there's, in inverted commas, a thing that people notice about you and what have you, then you've got two options there. Either you're like, that's what I'm really going to hammer home the entire time, or, okay, that's a thing that's part of my being, but not the entirety of my being, and let's deal with that, and then we can go on to a wider thing. So I wanted to, just generally in the stuff that I write and make, want to give maybe a more three-dimensional view of being a human being, particularly from the perspective of someone who is quite often two-dimensionalized, if that makes sense, uh, in other sorts of mainstream portrayals. Um, So to me, it's much more interesting to go into... Like I, I like talking about, or I don't like talking about, but get some sense of catharsis talking about sort of things in my life or things that I'm not particularly happy about or maybe mentally unwell or uh, what have you. And that's far more interesting to probe deeper, to my mind, into, into the individual rather than sort of looking outward entirely. Um, I'm, yes, I, I don't disagree with you. You're frowning, so I wondered if you were going to continue. No, no, that's no. fine. <laughs> so lots of different things uh, to work with there. I think before we move on from your voice, yeah. the, I want to just, as it pertains to education. Yeah. So what was your, was your degree in politics? Yeah. How did you find that degree, given your hidden agenda to become a comic? <laughs> I absolutely loved it. Well, I, I didn't really know for a fact that I wanted to go into comedy later because I ended up really, really enjoying the degree that I did and wanted actually to pursue academia for a little while longer and applied for a master's and was resolutely rejected because (laughs) my personal statement was effectively an acrostic poem saying, please don't make me go into the real world right now. I'm so desperately unready. Uh, And I think that they saw through that quite uh, reasonably and quite quickly. Uh, They're clever people, it turns out. Um, But yeah, I loved it. Uh, My my director of studies there remains the smartest person I've ever met and I still really like hanging out with her and talking about just state of everything. Um, and, yeah, those sorts of things where I miss a situation in some ways where you could just be, like, standing around three people chucking a ball about and talking about shit that 19-year-olds have absolutely no business talking about it. Like, we could change the world, man. <laughs> I can't imagine. I've never done a politics degree. I've, I mean, I've done a degree, but just barely, you know? <laughs> and, uh, yeah, but is that, is that, is it a lot of discourse-based? What's it like? What's it like? You know, the, the picture you paint there is wanting to change the world through it. Is that, was that reflected in the other people on your course? I don't, well, I mean, everyone. Or is it, or is it, is it you? Does you think politics and because I want to change the world? I don't know. I think that probably before I went, I thought that that's what politics meant. Uh, and afterwards became much more interested in the philosophy and theory and stuff behind it rather than any sort of practical uh, politics, which always just seemed quite grubby and gross um, to me. But yeah, it, it was very sort of discourse based where because we had these lovely like supervision things where it would just be like one on one or one on two and you would be sat on a sofa opposite a world-leading academic in their field who was pretending that you... uh, Kind of, like, very graciously pretending that they hadn't already thought of everything that you were were about to say. Okay. Uh, 
and yeah, it was just really fun. Like, it's just, but it, it was nice. Like, in the same way that I feel like a lot of comedy is like you're justifying breaking the silence when you walk onto a stage, and you're like, what is the point of you being here and doing this in front of us? Come on, yes. like, earn this. Uh, and similarly, that sort of environment where you're constantly being needled on a why and explain yourself properly, like, yeah. go for it. Like, I think helps just as a as a way of thinking, even when you're thinking about just like how can I get every tag out of this bit possible, or like have I rung this hard enough am i getting everything that i can out of it what did you say that when you you walk out on a stage people like the thought in the audience is i wanted to say exactly what you said yeah what possible reason have you got to be here <laughs> yeah, yeah. justify so what reason do you have to be there on on stage and stand up uh, it is now my only marketable skill <laughs> <laughs> yeah i know i mean come on we all think that <laughs> yeah but like I just think, like, ah, I have shit that I want to say, and I think it's interesting, and for as long as people seem to agree, then great. Uh, Like, I certainly wouldn't want to get out. Like, you do have this stuff where, you know, it can happen with your own bits or something. Like, say, walk out on stage and you're just doing, right, it's Friday night, central London, you're doing two, three things, going to hop between them and you find yourself telling a six-year-old joke that just feels like it's ash in your mouth as it's coming out. <laughs> and you're like, right, okay, need to not do that anymore because I'm certain people can tell that the heart isn't in this. Mm. But then when you're doing something that the heart properly is in and that sort of flurry of, you know, the moth flock in the gut and all of that, like, just bursting out, and then you get the immediacy of the response of they're like, yes, or they're like, never do that again. And both ways are so exciting. Such a joy to talk to Ahir. He's um, he's such an intelligent guy, and uh, there is, you will. <laughs> we should have some sort of version of ComCom Bingo, whereby you can spot a word that's never been said on the podcast before and tick it off some kind of a list. Maybe someone can start keeping a list on the Facebook group for us. Um, I'm put in mind of the Marcus Birdman episode I recorded today, where he talked about the rhythm and the meter of what he says, and it suddenly made me think, oh, I don't think anyone's used the word meter before in that context on the pod. So any. Anyway, feel free to contribute to that um, and indeed join the Facebook group to uh, just sort of become part of that community. It's really good fun at the moment. It's getting a little bit bee heavy. Uh, There's a running joke about bees that you'll be aware of if you're a long term listener. And um, every so often I really have to storm through the Facebook group and prune all the bee memes. But the stuff that isn't bee memes tends to be very sophisticated, intelligent, warm and 99% of the time very friendly and well thought out comedy chat people um sharing spare tickets to things as well and um and generally just everyone's everyone's just really lovely there and i'm really proud of it i'm really enjoying it so by all means join up to that if you like um thank you to everyone that's been coming out to the live shows and uh, it's all about edinburgh now we're all gearing up i've been uh, like i said i'm at hot water right now in liverpool and i've been sneaking in little bits ahead of primer which is the work in progress hour that i'm going to be doing never done a work in progress hour in edinburgh before and um, i'm really excited about the idea of just changing stuff up all the time from day to day i would i really hope and expect that what i start off with which is going to be very higgledy piggledy um, will be vastly different from what i'm doing in the middle of the festival and vastly different again from what I'm doing at the end. So uh, come and come several times and uh, hold me to that. Uh, I know that some of you who are the more uh, diehard goldsmith watchers um, might well take me up on that, and that would be quite useful to continue to spur me to keep cycling in newer stuff 
writing every day. That's the plan. Write every morning. Do the show at Monkey Barrel at three o'clock every day. And um, by all means, have a Google at edfringe.com. Go to edfringe.com and search my name or the word primer and you can get tickets in advance because it is a ticketed show. You can take a risk and just turn up and get in for free. Um, but it may well have sold out, and I think tickets are a fiver. So if you want to secure yourself a place, go to the website. And um, or is it? Well, I can never remember. The Monkey Barrel Comedy Club have got that. They've got the domain either fringe.com or fringe.co.uk. I can't remember. Have a check for one of those, and it might uh, see you right. So that's all of that stuff. I'll have a little post amble at you at the end. Don't miss out on seeing a here live. Um, you, you, uh, he's, he's an extraordinary act. So passionate, so intelligent and very, very funny. Very consistently uh, proper, proper laugh out loud funny. So track him down uh, on the internet and go and see him live somewhere. I mean, this is what I'm always saying. I think in almost all cases for my guests, by all means, find them doing bits and bobs on uh, YouTube but go and see I Hear Live. He's going to be back at the Edinburgh Festival, so if you're up there, add him to your list. We'll have spreadsheet day fairly soon, uh, which, as you may know, is when we get together and everyone uh, posts and I retweet. We put in the Facebook group and on Twitter, at ComComPod. And we could probably do it on Instagram, at ComComPod as well, if I ever get around to using Instagram. Or, I mean, I use it, but, you know, do I use it? So uh, everyone puts photos of their or screenshots of their plans for Edinburgh because I... What's the record? What's the most number of shows you can fit into a day? If you think you hold the record, and it's got to be eight plus, surely people out there are doing eight shows in a day. If you think you've seen more than eight shows in a day, then uh, let us know uh, on the internet somehow. Uh, if you need to contact me for any reason, you can do that info at comedianscomedian.com. And thank you for all your emails. I answer every single one of them. And if you've not heard back from me, uh, you are in a special folder called respond to this as soon as you get a free second. <laughs> so uh, you genuinely are uh, in that folder. So um, I do get back to everyone. And finally, before we get back into this interview with I hear, if you'd care to join the Insiders Club with a regular monthly donation to support the podcast at comedianscomedian.com slash insiders, then you can find 20 minutes worth of extra material from this episode as I hear tells us not only his reasoning in moving from the free fringe where he's been nestling very happily for some years to Monkey Barrel, um, we will be stable mates there. Um, uh, not only the reasoning behind that, and we, we talk a little bit about the, the financial implications and the audience growth implications of the free fringe model versus paid versus the sort of mid, the kind of mix and match approach of uh, venues like Monkey Barrel. But also, Ahir will tell us in the extras how he's preparing to appear on Have I Got News For You, which he's doing very soon, and uh, he'll tell us as well. Uh, what one thing he will have in his head that actually makes him feel relaxed about going into a TV recording. I was very uh, pleased to, to hear that. So that's all at comedianscomedian.com slash insiders. And now let's return to this conversation with Ahir Shah. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. So, do you think that that background of uh, being with an academic and arguing a point or exploring ideas that feels like that forms a pretty strong core of your your kind of the kernel of you as a comic yeah and i think um, so i think a big 
consequence of that is realizing that I always really enjoyed those like discursive sessions and the argument and trying to get to the core of something and was also aware that the sort of books that I was reading or something were written by academics for academics and were never going any further. And I was like, these things contain such interesting ideas about society and the world and stuff, but have an audience of 12, right? Mm. And this just isn't getting out in any way. And I think, like, stand-up is the closest that we can get to, like, the the sort of public oratory that doesn't really happen much anymore. Like, uh, nerds go to lectures like idiots. I go to lectures like an idiot. (laughs) Um, But but basically you're like, oh, right. The wonderful... um, thing that Lenny Bruce says of the like duty of the stand-up comedian is to make an audience laugh at minimum once every x number of seconds whatever it is right and you realize that right we're united by an end the means can be as varied as we would like them to be right and so uh, sorry no we're uh, the other way around so you realize that we're united by a means but the end can be whatever we want okay uh, right so whether you choose to tell one-liners that get people laughing every 15 seconds or you've decided to talk about something intensely personal or what have you um as long as you're making people laugh you can hit a much wider audience for what you would hope are interesting ideas than you perhaps otherwise would if you were writing some dry academic tome and is that was that kind of a light bulb moment for you to think oh actually through stand-up i can like how far into your stand-up practice did that realization come that you could i i can communicate big i big complex ideas because you are i think amongst comics certainly amongst british comics you are a real standard bearer for here is a big complex idea if i say all of these words you know your stuff is very it seems very densely written not all of it but the big ideas stuff is if I say this and that and that and that, I can bring you with me and now you get it. Yeah. Like, you know, you've got big... I remember when I saw a preview of Duffer um, in Caution. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. There was just huge volumes of, like, this idea, right? With me, with me. Little joke about Bohemian Rhapsody. And now pay attention again to this big thing. So so did you realise you could do that and that's what made you want to do comedy? Or were you doing comedy and realised that you could do that? I think definitely the latter, was doing comedy and realised that I could do it. And I think it's in part been a process through... uh, So when making stand-up shows, I work with a director, a fantastic director, Adam Brace, uh, Ah, who has... uh, Barnacles Brace. Yeah, Yeah. lovely. (laughs) Um, But basically he has been really good because I was... My natural inclination is always why one line when three would do, you know? And so he's been very good at hampering my uh, not hampering but um holding back my worst instincts and trying to augment the better which i think is what a good stand-up director should do and it was i think probably in the first time that i was working with him to be like five years ago now or something like that um where he was like I, i was just laboring a point and he was like we get it we get it in the first line and the reason is because there's a joke and then you realize that like i think of a joke like a zip file you know, and you tell someone a joke and they're unzipping it in their head and all of a sudden all of this information has sprung out from this tiny, tiny kernel because in the release of the laugh, you only laugh if you get it, right? And so you're able to, in seven words perhaps, carry out some sort of very large idea that people then can entirely do for themselves within the next second and you can move on. 
And whereas your tendency, your, when you say your worst instinct, is to present people with a PDF <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> with all the information in the <laughs> exactly. diagrams. See what I did there? See what I did yeah. <laughs> that is a, That's brilliantly put. And it, what, what's fascinating about that... What's fascinating about that is it's a good example of itself. Yeah. <laughs> oh, oh, I like it. Yeah. I like that a lot. <laughs> yeah. So, so basically, if uh, if Brace had been here, he would have been like, oh, you could have told him that in like 10 seconds. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's four minutes of his the, life. The zip file analogy, the zip file, you know, a way of describing a much yeah. more complicated <laughs> thing like this metaphor. Oh, I love it. Love it. Um, Own so, worst enemy, as ever. Yeah. Well, so where does that instinct come from for you to say more than you need to? Because I, I've, I've, watched, I've watched your shows for a long time, and I think I've made the observation possibly to you in the past. I've, I feel like I've picked up on that, that you... And I think I, I think a review put it quite well. I, I read a review, only ever for research. Never read them, they're not for us. Yeah. Um, but for research purposes, I read a review that says you... You, I think it was something like, you are happy to wear your intelligence on your sleeve. <laughs> and I, do you feel that's fair? Probably. Like, de- definitely more so when, like, I think paradoxically that sort of thing happens much more when you're less confident uh, in what I you're agree. doing. So when I was younger, that was much more the case. In previews, it's much more the case. And sort of now, I hope, gets largely cut out by Edinburgh time. But there's a sort of, like tendency to fall back on because it's something that I feel like I can control so if a bit in a preview isn't like working out the way that I thought it would work in my head then you get to know that oh but don't you realize how incredibly clever it all is and you're like retrospectively you're like no one wants to fucking hear that come on like maybe put a joke in it and then they'll actually enjoy Um, so give us an example of um, or in fact what is the what's the biggest idea you've managed to zip into a joke and you can take as long as you need to think about this, because yeah. I'm sure you'll have a good answer for it. But in terms of the complexity of an idea that you've managed to put into a sentence or two, that you're really like, nailed that one. Um, do you mind if I look at a, a doc? Absolutely the- not. Absolutely not. I'd love you to. I'd love you to. And I wouldn't ask this of most people, but I feel like I've got a big brain here that I want to... Uh, uh, whatever the, Whatever you do to brains. <laughs> Um, no, I, I think I definitely know what it is. Um, it's so basically in the last show, uh, I had a sort of running thing of Bohemian Rhapsody yeah. lyrics going through it, which originated in the fact that my dad once found the lyrics of Bohemian Rhapsody in my handwriting and thought that I'd written it when I was eight years old. <laughs> uh, but anyway, so that that sort of teed up a thing, and I would try to then use callbacks to the song anytime I needed to puncture a particularly emotionally difficult uh, moment, right? So I had um, talked about uh, being the last person my uncle spoke to before he killed himself and my parents explaining this to me on the couch when I was 15 and me not being able to believe it and thinking, is this the real life? Is this just fantasy? Do you like that? It's from a poem I wrote when I was eight. Or like uh, when I was on antidepressant... Well, I now am back on, but... uh, on antidepressant medication became much more the sort of guy who was, you know, like little high, little low, anyway, the wind blow didn't really matter uh, to me. And then at the end, discussing uh, my grandmother's dementia and realizing that that's pretty much how it ends for all of us in some sort of like terribly sad indignity, sometimes wish I'd never been born at all. And I think those things always like helps to both inject a moment of levity and just would it almost recompress uh, the larger things that I'd been talking about and put them in quite a 
like swift palatable way definitely and i think that i think that that is an excellent structure to your show i to push you on this i don't think that's quite what i mean in right. terms of I, what i'm after is and I, I don't disagree with anything you said i think it, and it's excellent i remember laughing at it very much but i think i think what i'm what i'm trying to steer you towards is a, a joke which contains a lot of working out in it so right. you do us a short joke but we get I mean almost an example that one about your voice my body's that, been that colonised by itself be, that's one that I was thinking of just now sure like yeah potentially my name's Ahir Shah let's get the obvious out of the way I realise that I sound as though I've been colonised by my own voice and in that I think yeah you probably are learning a lot about a character yes. within that few words yes the fact that you're talking about the fact that you're using that the joke itself hmm. the, the idea of I know I'm aware of the sure, history I'm sure aware, like, sure yeah. Okay. Um, so where are you now? In the, Are you going to Edinburgh again? Oh, buddy. <laughs> Back on the antidepressant. Presumably yeah. there's some stress, stressors in Oh, God, I realised it was basically sort of during the last uh, fringe where I realised, oh, God, like, I'm just so tired immediately after doing the show. And, like, what is happening? Like, I, I'm sure that it wasn't. And then I just realised I was running on serotonin fumes for the entirety uh, of the month because it's the first one that I'd done in a long time where I was uh, where I was off uh, then, which sort of lasted for about a year. Uh, but, yes, I'm, I'm now back on and ready to <laughs> go another round with a... And you're in a... You're in a... Are you... Do you feel under pressure? So two years ago you got nominated... Yes, and last year as well. And last year you got nominated as well. Yeah, um, I'm contained within that is uh, me realizing you didn't win either of those times. The no, nominations. No. I, I try not to. I try not to. Uh, uh, what's the word? If I could remember the it's word, fun. this would be a clever it's fine, point. Stuart, I'm aware enough for both of us. Fine, thank you. There we go. <laughs> Very gracious. <laughs> um, okay. So, do you feel? pressure do you feel contextual pressure that this one's got to be even better or do you feel do you i mean how do you feel about the awards you're getting recognition you're doing very well you're selling out long runs at soho i believe you've got something sexy on tv coming up are you doing uh yeah yeah so it, it's all going off do you need to do well at edinburgh i think that it's it's more a thing that one wants to do for oneself right uh in the sense that like Yes, I feel the pressure of this one needs to be better than the last one, but not for external factors, just because that's the way that I feel that you should feel with any sort of creative endeavour, because that's what... Or really any endeavour, right? Because sure. it, it's what propels you to do better the Absolutely. next time. The minute that you get like, oh, this will do, and I'll just coast now, then A, you're going to bore yourself, because uh, you're not setting yourself any challenges, and B, you're going to bore everyone who's spent their time and money in order to engage with the thing. Um, so I think, like, this year, there's, there's a bit of nervousness in the sense that it took a lot longer this year to work out what it was that I wanted to talk about. Um, and that's sort of crystallising in my head now. Uh, so, I mean, there's the, there's the sort of general incumbent stress, but I don't think it's from a sort of Excel or like, oh, what will the review say or what will the awards uh, say? While all of that is very nice... Um, it's more just like consistently wanting to make something that makes the last one feel like, oh yeah, that was the sort of thing that I was doing back then, and oh, isn't that like? Yeah, I mean, given however that your last two shows have been not just very well received, not just excellent pieces of work in their own right, but one of them was very 
uh, politically, I, I don't just mean a hot take, but it was politically uh, rigorous and passionate and timely. And your more recent one, as well as being all of those things, was also this incredibly kind of uh, personal story about your mental health and your the lives of your family and, you know, your uncle's suicide, your life of your grandmother. Like that, like it, it wouldn't be coasting to, to kind of go, whew, okay, let's, you know what I mean? Like, or do, do you feel, like, where are you with it now? Are you thinking that you need to out... Do you think that for your own satisfaction you need to, I don't mean outdo, but to somehow improve upon the gravity and the passion of those I, I don't necessarily mean in terms of, like, needing to go deeper into things internally, because, firstly you would hope that fewer bad things happen. <laughs> like, it would be lovely to have nothing to talk about. One year that will happen and I'll be... <laughs> I, I will be blissfully sure. away from Happy Edinburgh. guy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Not appearing at this festival. Yeah. Happy guy, show cancelled. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I just mean in the sense that you always want the challenge of like, ah, this one should have more laughs than the last one. Mm-hmm. Or it just be like a funnier piece of comedy. Because that's what you're doing, like fundamentally as a comedian, like whatever it is that you're talking about, you're building everything out of jokes and just trying to build a taller tower of jokes every year is an of, in and of itself an exciting prospect and a good challenge to set oneself, uh, I think. So, yeah, I certainly don't mean that, like, I need to plumb even further into the depths and be like, oh, guys, if uh, if another one of you could get a terminal illness real quick, then that would be a, <laughs> that'd be a real boon to shut. <laughs> uh, yeah. I just mean, like, try and make a new piece of comedy that I'm happy with and contains better jokes. And what are your, at this stage, what are we now, May? Yeah. What are your uh, stressing factors to do with your writing of the new show? Do you have, like, one of my, one of my perennial fears is that I'll, I'll run out. I won't have anything left to write jokes about. I'll run out of subjects. As soon as you yeah. mint a new bit, you're like, that's preposterous. And as soon as you're used to that new bit, you go but what if I run out now? Like, that's a particular thing in mind. Do you have any sort of built-in, kind of almost like go-to negative thoughts about yeah. the process? Well, there's, uh, I'm reminded of, there's a lovely line of Frank O'Hara's poetry, which I've been thinking about a lot recently, uh, from the Meditations in Emergency, uh, where he says, uh, each time my heart is broken, I become more adventurous, but one of these days there'll be nothing left with which to venture forth. Uh, and that's kind of how I think that feeling... Uh, often goes um i think that the nerviness is like at this stage there's a lot of like trying out new bits and afterwards people being like are you all right (laughs) (laughs) okay okay what sort of bits what are we are we are we doing what do you have a subject is Um, it is it that people are asking because you're talking about your mental health or yeah yeah and it's just like you you want to you want to make it so, like it's like no i'm talking about this because this is a thing that i find interesting to talk about and I am the very fact that I am talking about it means that to some extent I'm clearly okay discussing it so that's fine but you want to like you know you just want to get rid of that tension that people sometimes feel and you know you see their bodies clutching up and it's like right you we're not going to make a laugh come out of that physical form yeah. uh right now um so I think like that's a bit of a worry of just 
trying to and it, it's what something like the Bohemian Rhapsody thing really helped with in the last show of just needing some sort of levity in order to lift the moments of otherwise oh god I remember someone saying that during a preview uh, last year <laughs> in, in like June or something I was at the 40 minute mark of the show and someone just in the audience was like audibly oh god <laughs> yeah you're right that bit is too bleak and yeah. that will be fit. that's why we do them that's why we do the previews um so yeah, just hoping that that sort of thing gets fixed. And what other things do you have to cope with between now and, and Edinburgh? What sorts of things? I'm, fe- I'm feeling that this might be a, a sort of separate strand to the podcast. You know, I'm fond of asking people if they're happy. I think I'm going to get into asking, like, what things do you have to cope with and how do you cope with them? Yeah, well, I think, like, so a, a, a big thing with this show is that I had thought previously that it was largely going to be about a particular relationship and I'm no longer in that particular relationship and that kind of meant that relatively late in the thinking it through process it all had to change quite markedly Uh, and so it's a weird one because I think I'm still sort of working out how I feel about all of that at the same time as trying to work out what this is going to be and how this all... Uh, fits together and um, but just I'm quite keen to I'm quite keen to in some ways avoid a repetition of what happened last year because you think about Edinburgh and you think oh I'm doing this show in Edinburgh but actually I finished touring Duffer two three weeks ago mm-hmm. uh, right and so actually it was something that the initial Experience an idea for it happened in November 2017, and I was keeping on talking about this stuff until April 2019. A lot of it, which was quite difficult stuff mm. to talk about uh, from a personal and familial perspective, and that I was very, very happy to do because these are the stories of people I love, and their stories I think are important to share with people. Um, but I think that's also a thing that I've got in the back of my head at the moment of like, don't don't write about present sadness that you hope won't be future sadness. Like, there's no point in me in April 2020 discussing feelings that ideally I won't be feeling. really bad May. Yeah, 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 sure. Exactly, you're like, yeah, what's the point? Um, So, yeah, I think that that's that's a sort of odd one where I'm trying to sort of simultaneously work out how my life fits together and uh, work out how this fits together uh, at the same time. Does it, does it cost you something to do, to tour material, to create material that is so familiarly important? Does it, like, if you, in the, in the most kind of obvious example, if you're writing some jokes about your uncle's suicide mm. and you do a gig and the gig goes badly and the jokes about it don't work... Does part of you want to kind of run away from that and go, I I shouldn't be doing jokes about this? No, so the only time that that happened on this tour was when I was in Bedford and there was just a large contingent of very, very drunk people uh, in the audience. But the sort of... With Duffer, the more... Like, the dissented... Ascent or Descent, into the more emotional elements started about 20, 25 minutes into the tour show. Mm. And so by that point, I had a sense of what I was going to get from that room and just made the internal decision of, right, you won't get this stuff because 
I know that in this environment, this is not the right environment for it. Okay. And there will be a bad reaction. I will feel terrible. I'll probably say something that I shouldn't. I'll like, And I was just like, guys, a lot of the first half ended up just being taken up with chat with these people. And then for the second half, I was like, I'm just going to do bits from sure. the old show. In order uh, to safeguard the material and yourself. Yeah, exactly. Cause, and, it, and it was a real shame for... And very nicely, actually, uh, there were a couple... Uh, who were there back in November um, who messaged me after the show at the Bloomsbury Theatre that I closed off the UK tour with uh, on the 4th of April and they messaged saying, by the way, we were at the Bedford thing mm. and we came down to London to watch it to tonight so that we could actually see yeah. it uh, and they, they very much enjoyed it, which was really nice. Um, but yeah, so it was like, it's it's got to be in an environment that's conducive to that sort of thing actually taking place. Yeah. What sort of other things... How long have you been doing stand-up now? I did my first gig 14 years ago. Good Lord. How many... Oh, no, 13 years ago. How many hours have you done? Seven. Okay. What have you... What have the light bulb Uh, It was a bad idea, just so uh, so everyone knows. It wasn't, like... It wasn't smart. (laughs) To do what, sorry? To... Uh, well, just in the sense that, like, I just started very young and I was like, yeah, sure, this, why not? Like, if I'd actually had any sense of I want to do a career in this thing, that I would definitely have gone about it in a vastly different way. What would you have done differently? Uh, but there's no, way, there's no way that I would have done my debut Edinburgh show when I was 20. What the hell did I have to say? Nothing, right? Like, it's a, what, what does a 20-year-old really uh, kind of... In was it a funny show? Was it still a... Was it a good show? I mean, what, yeah, let's analyse it. Yeah. Review your first hour. I think that <laughs> I had a thing until probably my fourth hour where I was sort of, you know, like like an under-18 footballer might be. You'd be like, oh, he's good for his age, but you wouldn't have him in the first team. Okay. You know what I mean? Okay. And so I had that for a few years. Because, and then, specifically why? I think just because I was trying, firstly trying to run before I could walk, um, hadn't really done my time properly on the circuit, just working out how to be a comic. Uh, and so was was doing things that one should do after finding one's voice before I'd done that. I, I, I feel like I know what you mean, but like specifically what? Just re- given that there'll be people listening to this who are 20, yeah. who are considering their first hour, yeah. what sorts of things should you not have done? Oh, and maybe like you may well be a 20-year-old who does have that and can do that. I'm just saying I probably wasn't. Sure, uh, right. sure, so that's, sure. That's not to denigrate the ability. No, of no, absolutely. Else no, um, but I just think like it was probably just like the accumulation of life experience that's necessary before you can actually have a conducive like to to have your voice as a comedian is to be able to walk out on stage and say this is me and have a very like clear thing of what that is, but the younger you are just the more malleable you are right just generally speaking and so this is there is no proper identifiable you it's like oh i'm all of these different things that i'm getting from all around the place and i'm trying to echo this comedian who i really like or that comedian who i really like or this thing that i really enjoy uh reading or listening to or what have you and all of those things eventually kind of merge in a pot to become the you that you then present those few years down the line, um, but you don't have it when you're that young. But then I, d- I don't know if anyone does have it with the first couple of shows that they do, because the first couple are always going to be sort of an amalgam of all your influences and those sorts of things. 
talk about antidepressants. And, well, oh, yeah, sure. Let's, I, I thought you said dinner presents. Like, let's talk about your dinner presents. <laughs> it's a German great. term. <laughs> <laughs> um, I was once... Uh, sorry, we had uh, in the last um, house that I lived in before the current one, uh, we had... Um, a uh, couple over who were friends with one of my housemates and their thing was every time they went over somewhere for dinner they'd bring scratch cards for everyone and that would be like a thing to do after dinner. Oh, and I think that's nice. a really neat... Dinner present. Yeah. <laughs> that's a great dinner present. That's a lovely idea. Yes, I, for birthdays I have a particular friend where we get each other speciality bets. <laughs> Things like that, you know, it's a lot of fun. Um, let's, let's zero in on Edinburgh. How is your mental health during the Edinburgh Festival, which is one of the most gruelling times of a comics career? Mm. Or is it? Is it, is it more or less gruelling than being on tour? On your, do you have a support act on tour? No. No, so, so that's, just you... That's probably more gruelling because yeah. you're alone. I think, like, that. I really like Edinburgh and don't get the people who are like, oh, this is awful, then why are you here every year? You know, no one's making you do this. Um... So I do enjoy I think, like, the part of doing comedy that I find most difficult is the just the standard loneliness of it, uh, and particularly when you're on tour and you realise, like, oh, I haven't... Oh, my voice feels weird. Oh, it's because it's 7pm and I've just said the first thing to another human being yeah, that, that I've that said thing. all day, yeah. and it's to buy a sandwich at a yeah. train station because I have to go um, far away. And so... Those things are different, whereas in Edinburgh you properly feel like you have colleagues and there's a lovely sense of camaraderie, I think. Summer camp. Uh, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Uh, and I think, like, I, I don't really get the... But, like, I think some people talk about, like, people being bitter in Edinburgh. And I don't know whether I've just had the good fortune that my friends have all tended to do quite well. And so it's nice to be able to just have a pint afterwards and really like... Oh yeah, it's going all right, isn't it? Like we're, we're going to be okay, I think. Mm. Um, so I quite like that. Certainly, I found last year in the and only realised about two thirds of the way through that oh, the appreciable difference here is the absence of medication. That is the like it was the first time that I properly noticed that oh, there is a stark difference when this stuff isn't when I don't have this stuff. And which is that? Do you mean up or down? A difference up or a difference down? A difference down, like right, as okay. in when I was doing Edinburgh 2018 was just physically and mentally spent at the hour, end of every hour. Yeah. Uh, and then particularly at the ones where I was lucky because it was doing well, so I added extra shows at the weekends and there was one of them where like 10 minutes before I was just saying to my manager, I think that we're going to have to cancel this. I think I'm going to have a panic attack in this room now. Uh, and... Fortunately, he just, like, sat me down for a couple of minutes. Like, we can open a couple of minutes late. That's fine uh, if, if you want to, or we can pull it if you want to either way. Yeah. And just did some sitting and breathing and drinking water, and it was all okay in the end. Um, but, yeah, I think that that's the first time that I've noticed uh, its impact on one's physical and mental health because it's the first time that I've been sort of, like, an established comedian and not on medication. Okay, okay. So, wh and what? How? When did you first get onto medication? I think like uh, five years ago now, something like that. Okay. And was that after therapy? During? Instead of? No, it was basically there was like a, a gigantic wait list uh, for therapy, uh, and so after a while, things just got 
bad enough that I was like, something needs to be done here. Okay. Uh, Can you, are you happy talking a, in, yeah, in yeah. a bit more detail about what sorts of, like, what, what kind of, what's the primary challenge with your, with your mental health? Mm, it's just the, the little voice that won't shut up. Okay. <laughs> uh, Self-criticism. So, yeah, and, uh, and, and worse. And so you just try to, try to quieten that guy down a bit. Um, Has that always been there? Yeah, or? but it sort of got, got worse over time. Uh, and I think, like, it's stuff like, basically, there are, there are elements of the way that my life has to go just because of the job that we do and what have you, that there's very little control that I have over that. Like, the being alone for extended periods of time, not talking to people, uh, not, you know, like, being... Strange, like paradoxically doing this extremely social job where while not having social interactions because of the social nature of your job, yeah. um, which just are inherently not good for us as an animal. This is not the way that we evolved to live. Unfortunately, well, fortunately in the sense that I love comedy and I love doing comedy, but it is the sort of corner I've painted myself into, uh, which exacerbates certain things. Um, and so need to find a way of dealing with that and so do you do you feel like it's the price like those negative circumstances are the price you pay for being able to do the job you love like i I, like a big issue with me is there's no routine Mm. i think routine's really good for mental health and our jobs have no routine yeah and so i feel like i have to try and impose a routine on my job but it doesn't work i never go oh wednesday will be my day off do you want to gig on wednesday yes like to try and to sort of struggle through trying to impose a more healthy structure on an inherently difficult life. I mean, I, you know, I, I drive, so I don't, I'm not often on trains, but I'm, now I get lots... I discovered this has made me so much happier in the last year, listening to podcasts in which I learn about things that are nothing to do with comedy. Yeah. I'm obsessed. I'm not a property investor, but I'm learning a lot about property investing <laughs> because I just I like the hosts and I enjoy the show. And uh, I like I, I I listen to a money podcast. I learn yeah. how inflation works. I'm like, now I know what inflation is. That's great. So like that's been really useful. But it's been years and years of yeah. I mean the isolation I find very very difficult. And do you have any? Um, do you have any successful almost like? Um, you know, depression hacks. Do you have any kind of, like, successful things that you do that, you know, structures that you can give yourself that that make it a bit more manageable? Yeah. Uh, One of the very annoying things is being told repeatedly by your GP and everyone, eating better and exercise, eating better and exercise, and you're like... Well, I desperately don't want that to be true. So let's, uh, <laughs> I'll do anything to not feel like this. Go for a run. Well, not that. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And then when you actually remember to do that sort of thing, you're like, oh, right, this does actually have a Absolutely noticeable market yeah. impact. Um, so, yeah, just that sort of thing, which is the the usual advice, really. Like, most of the usual advice works. And do you do it? Do you stick to it? No, of course not. This is the problem. Like, it's, I, I have the best intentions in the world uh, when yeah. uh, I wake up, but it's just the thing of, like, as you say, when there's no routine and you try to make the routine of, oh, this is the time when I will do that or yeah. uh, cook or go for a run or what yeah. have you. And you just end up not. And, yeah, I think that but that'll be sort of one that over the course of the coming period, I think I want to... Get a bit more, get a bit more on, because um, yeah, the the spring was 
not pleasant. Uh, so. So, when you're writing about your... So, the, 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 what is the subject of your show at the moment? Is it... What's the, the new show? Can you tell us what it's about or what, it's, what it is turning out to be about? Yeah. Uh, I think it's going to be about sort of belief... Uh, how have I described it? This is good. This is going to be me coming up with an elevator pitch on the spot. This is, uh, this Great. is nice. This Happy will be useful. <laughs> <laughs> In the future. Um, it's about uh, sort of belief, life, existence in an absurd world, the rational response to existence within an absurd world, why we feel like we can't continue, why we do continue. And when, I mean, that sounds like a typically jam-packed, concept-heavy, not necessarily in an unwieldy way. I think in my hands that would be very unwieldy. <laughs> I think, you know what I mean? Like... That's it. I've also got loads of jokes about Mexico. <laughs> yeah, sweet. Yeah, I'm sure you do. I'm sure you do. But this is, you know, this is absolutely one of your strongest suits: is your ability to condense those things, to make those things palatable and accessible, whilst being sort of huge topics. When you are covering big topics, like I noticed a bit that you uh, did, I think in Australia, it's on YouTube. Uh, when you were at Melbourne, there's like a comedy up late, I think. You were talking about the you've a very very funny bit, which I think I've seen you do live as well about googling on your iPhone whether or not something is fair trade. Yeah. So you're using, I will now butcher the bit, you're using a piece of technology built by Chinese slaves to establish whether African people have been mistreated. Yeah. That's so, I mean, the case in point, huge topics, very funny, right? You've managed to go, you've managed to spike precisely the kind of internal, the hypocrisy of that, the, yeah. the, the, the paradox at the middle of it. Bang, got it. What kind of a challenge is it to you to do stuff that well? Like, do you, do you get a topic... Does that idea fall into your head? Or do you spend hours going, how can I say what I want to say about this? What can I frame it in, maybe through the medium of the phone? Talk us through yeah. that, that kind of process. Well, but that, like, literally did come about because that is what I was doing in Tesco and, like, uh, doing that. And I was just like, oh, this is weird, isn't it? And so make a little note of it, do it on stage. And I think, like, importantly, it's like... I, I think useful when you're a comedian to be like, no, I'm an asshole too. Like, I'm not being prescriptive about this. It's like, what else can I do? Like, I'm not going to not have a smartphone. So, and I'm not telling anyone else, like, this is the thing that you should do. Or like, oh, throw that in the sea uh, or anything. It's just like, this is a statement of fact and isn't the reality absurd. And was, well, I guess that you're really doing is drawing attention to like, look, this bit of reality is really absurd. Have you looked at that? So, yes. So all comedy is observational comedy, essentially. Yes, yeah, sure. So in your current show, do you find, if you are writing about aspects of your your mental health, or when you have in the past, do you find that... When I, I wrote a show in 2011 that was about my anxiety, and writing it was torture, because every time I wrote a thing, I would have to kind of go, how do I feel about that? And then I'd end up feeling very negative and falling down an absolute fucking rabbit hole <laughs> of... What is the truth of this? Oh, it is a bit bleak, isn't it? You know what I mean? <laughs> Just sort of depressing myself. Mm. Are you able to maintain kind of a healthy distance from either the material about mental health or the material about one's own hypocrisy? Can you can you can you maintain a distance from from implicating yourself in it and that making you feel negative? Uh I think that it's it's the sort of thing that even like outside of the realms of comedy, these are the sorts of things that one has to maintain a slight distance from in one's own head otherwise you would just immediately jump off a bridge uh so i think you do have to 
maintain that. I think that working with uh, Adam helps a lot in that, just having an external voice of being able to, like, oh, we can talk this through together, and it helps that when because we feel like we're having a bit more of an objective conversation, uh, he and I, then it feels like a bit we're talking about something that someone else has put on the page. Yes, and how okay. How do you and I... How do you and I feel about what Ahir is saying there? Sure. Um, and that helps, I think, get a bit of the distance from it. And have you? can you give us an example of a big topic that you haven't been able, like something that's kind of, uh, that's frustrated you because you haven't managed to get it into the right words yet? Uh, one day I will manage to write a stand-up show about... Right, I've got this theory. (laughs) So, basically, Nietzsche writes about the death of God in the mid-19th century and means by that the loss of primacy of the religious impulse within Western politics and the way that Western statecraft is done, uh, right, and uh, Western society more generally. And so it's like, how do we proceed in this godless world when we no longer have the anchor of some absolute moral truth or what have you. Nietzsche is wrong because, in some sense, the apotheosis of... Which is, I suppose, a strange word to use in the sense, but... Uh, I don't like, understand what the word means. Uh, uh, bringing up to the level of godhood. Oh, I understand. Okay, um, yeah, yeah. Right. Uh, but I feel as though, like, a lot of the implications of Christianity continue through Marxism... And so the Christian mode of organising society does not end until the Soviet Union collapses. And so I think that that's why when you got people talking about the end of history, when the Soviet Union collapsed, they are talking about a very particular type of history ending because that is when God properly died. And that, I think, is why you see in the contemporary world, like the mass rise over the last 20 or 30 years of first you had an attempt at a third way. But now in backlash, you have sort of secular and theocratic fascisms creeping back into existence and hardline modes of organizing societies, which uh, lay claim to some absolute moral truth, because this has been the only period in human history where we've properly lost God and we still need it as an animal, I think. Uh, and so that sort of God-shaped hole has to be plugged by something. And I think that we get into the Gramsci thing of the old world is dead, the new world cannot be born in the interregnum, many morbid symptoms appear. And I think that we're living through the morbid symptoms at the moment. One day, I'll work out how that's funny. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. (laughs) But But you'll work out how it's funny because because it strikes you as to be internally funny somehow, or you'll work out how it's funny because you want to talk about it, and in order to talk about it, you have to make it funny. Both. I think it's absurd, so I think it's funny. Uh, Okay. But, like, there's funny stuff in there. But, like, as I say, like... If you could unpack that or sort of pack that into a zip file and unpack it in people's heads, that could work really well. Actually, um, in his last show, Hail Mary, uh, Sean McLaughlin talked about similar topics and I think did it very, very well and uh, in a very funny, very interesting way. Uh, and so when I watched that show twice in the end and uh, both times I was just like... Ah, uh, he's got a lot closer to doing it than I have, hasn't he? Like, that's yeah. annoying. And is that because it, his... Sh- well, I, I mean, let's, let's bring it back to you. Could you write a show about that? Maybe it doesn't lend itself to a one-liner or even a 
10-minute bit, mm. could that joke, could what's absurd about that, could that be an entire show? Yeah, potentially. Uh, it probably would take longer than a one-liner to get across, yeah. I suppose. Like, I think, but, I feel like you describing that is the most intelligent individual nugget that anyone's ever said on this podcast. <laughs> it's something like 300 episodes. And there's some higher-level intelligence. I'm sure some listener will write in to explain why I'm deeply wrong. Oh, no, sure. This, I mean, but, you know, well, listen... Which I may well be. I still haven't discussed it with anyone else. So you can make the case. <laughs> um, <laughs> you know. But, yeah, I think... Um, well, it's, it's going to be, like, you could easily have a show about like, the necessary search for God in a godless world uh, and how we react to the divine in a society that's given up on it. Like, that's easily doable. I've got stuff about that that's going to be in the new one. Um, Who are your peers amongst comedy? Who else is covering this sort of territory? Uh, well, I think, like, lots of people are covering this sort of thing. Like, Sean being a great case in point. Like, they often... Well, because, like, I think he is someone who works very well on two levels. Like, just, like, the ludicrous joke about having cum on his backpack and something really incisive about Christianity. Uh, Like, and he can do both within the thing. And there's something to appeal to head and heart and throat and gut and all of that uh, when you listen to someone like him. So people are doing it, no doubt. But, I mean, I feel now that I there must be a whole... Ra- I mean, are there lots of comics doing that kind of thing that I simply don't have the intelligence to gather that that's what they're doing? Or is are you and Sean outliers in that respect? I don't know. Like, I think that... Like, name five other comics that are doing that kind of stuff because I'd love to... You know what I mean? Like, I, I, I've seen Sean do uh, half an hour... In a in a festival, which was a really good, I mean, which is fantastic, um, and I didn't get that from it. Maybe he was doing the clubbiest bits of the show. You know, yeah, I, I didn't. He was doing I, I'm sure he was. I didn't been, see yeah. that show. I'd love to have seen it, but um, but like, are there? Is there a? I suppose what I'm asking is, is it a case of your perception, meaning that you pick up on what comics shows are really about? in a way that maybe they themselves, I don't mean this specifically about Sean, in, in a way that they themselves are less aware, or can you point to lots of people who are doing very intellectual work which sits beneath the surface of a sort of accessible... I don't, I don't think that that's necessarily the case. Or, like, in terms of perceiving things that others might not yeah. perceive in their own like, I feel, I mean, like I feel To, to like an extent, I... there is something... Like, because Adam will often say to me... Like, oh, you know that that's really what you're getting at there. Okay. Like, Am I? It's like, yeah, well, it's obvious if you like, go okay. like two thoughts deeper into the rabbit hole. And you're like, oh, yeah, actually, when you put it like that, now that you've taken a step back and looked at it, maybe that is what I'm uh, saying. So maybe there's a bit of that. But I think we go back to the thing about um, comics being united by means rather than ends, right? And so if you can do a show about some mental theory that you've got about the development of society over the last few hundred years and can make that funny, then do that. If you want to, like, the funniest hour I've ever spent is with Emo Phillips, and that's, like, that's also fucking fantastic. Yeah. Um, so it's just, yeah, it's it's the wonderful freedom of being able to take this form absolutely wherever you want to on the proviso that it's fundamentally built out of jokes. That's all you need to do. I often finish my interviews by asking people if they're happy. Hmm. I'm aware you're on antidepressants at the moment. Yeah. Uh, are you happy? Uh, I don't think so, no. 
uh, <laughs> I'm just I'm just remembering the end of Greece where it's like, it's like, I'm not happy, no, but I think I know how I could be. <laughs> and so I'm just going to walk out of here, light a fag and put on some leather trousers. And so all of a sudden, be like, uh, all it took was denying every aspect of myself in order to <laughs> fit in with a boy. <laughs> like, that's all. Um, no, I, I don't know if I'm uh, particularly happy, but uh, relatively sort of boring emotion, isn't it? Like, or, or not complex emotion, at any, at, anyway. Uh, I feel like I'm interested in things uh, and I'm excited by things uh, and I think that that is enough for the moment until happy comes back and I feel like it will. Thanks, man. So that was Ahir. Really good fun to talk to him. Thank you so much to, to Ahir for coming along and again, thank you for being so candid. As you know, I love it when guests are prepared to go into a bit of detail about their mental health because I, I genuinely think there is a value in all of us talking about it and I'm always very grateful when uh, guests on the show are prepared to um, uh, share something with us that is uh, not something they would normally share with the general public. So thank you once again here. Thank you, of course, to the Bill Murray pub and Barry and everyone there at the Angel Comedy um, for the use of the recording space. Thank you to Nathan Wood for producing the show. Thank you to podcast consultant Peter Dobbing. Thanks to Rob Smountain for the music and all of the usual people. Jake Crossland, of course, for uh, for uh, logging and all of that useful stuff. That's everything. Um, I will post Amble at you in a moment, but uh, brilliant Danny McLaughlin has just walked into the green room here at Hot Water, so I'm not going to subject him to it. I'll record it separately now, but that won't make a difference to you because you'll hear it after this noise. So time for a post-amble now, having relocated both in terms of space and time. Um, I hope you enjoyed this one with Ahir. I, uh, I was going to say something about, um, uh, how pleasant he was to talk to and how inspiring he was to talk to. And, um, and I, I stopped there because I also wanted to say something along the lines of, and I really hope he sorts his head out as well, because, you know, we all need to sort our heads out. I, uh, I'll leave it there because I don't want to say anything, um, uh, to, uh, trite about anyone's mental health because, uh, come on, we're all uh, struggling with things to a greater or lesser degree. But anyway, really enjoyed talking to Ahir and uh, good luck to him for finding the happiness that you would imagine someone with uh, his... that you would that you would imagine, you would blithely imagine someone with Ahir's uh, talent and skill and uh, success would enjoy. Now, I say blithe because... That's something that's been occurring to me a lot recently, the relationship between happiness and success and whether there is a relationship, whether actually success makes people happy or whether happiness makes people happy and success just makes people successful. <laughs> and it doesn't seem often to be much of a link between those things. I want to... I'll, I'll, I'm no longer talking specifically about her here. That's merely a kicking off point. So let's leave him uh, happily where he is. And uh, and I, I hope you do enjoy lots of his work. But two things made a real impression on me this last week. One of which I'll maybe, the success happiness thing, I will maybe talk about in more depth when 
I talked to you after the Paul Smith interview because uh, in uh, in Liverpool, as I mentioned, I had a fantastic uh, interview with Marcus Birdman and then a really, really invigorating one with Paul Smith, who, as you may know, has become hugely famous and successful uh, in Liverpool and hugely successful online and kind of internet famous around the rest of the country and perhaps world. And he seems to have, uh, I, we'll get into it more when, when you hear the interview, but one of the things that's fascinating about Paul is that he doesn't really give a shit about success. And very rarely do you see someone who can fill an arena who genuinely, and, you know, a lot of a lot of people, a lot of very successful people affect this idea of, oh, you know, I don't care. Hey, it's nothing to me. I mean, do they? That's not a popular thing. But anyway, even when they when you do hear people say that, if you do, part of you thinks you can't possibly mean that. Well, Paul means it. Paul is happy. Paul is happy in and of himself and and is hugely successful. And you get the impression that if the success ended tomorrow, it wouldn't affect his happiness at all. And that's something I've I've been sort of reflecting on this weekend. And I also want to talk about something that is um, maybe not even tangentially related, but something that I found incredibly stirring and that really kind of jolted me out of the sometimes comfortable position that I end up in as a uh, as a as a podcaster and as a person who has a a thing you know this 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 thing is my thing right and uh, and it, it provides me a lot of joy it provides me an outlet to talk to you uh, the interviews provide me interesting conversations and i also am blessed with this sort of sense of legacy however minor you know you and a lot of other people listen to this and um and you say nice things about it and you tell me it's affected your lives positively and i suppose for a few years i have been getting accustomed to that and getting quite comfortable in that like I, I like that. Makes me feel good. I don't want that to stop. But the the jolt came a few days ago when I was uh, very lucky to speak to the advisory board of an excellent charity called Their World, uh, all one word, Their World, uh, which does fantastic work with uh, children, vulnerable and underprivileged children all over the world. Uh, they're, they're an incredible charity. And I spoke uh, about resilience and comedy, as that's my latest thing I'm doing. Um, in a, in a, a serious but amusing way, but a serious way. And I spoke to their advisory board and there were lots of uh, high level people on that advisory board, but I had to follow the most extraordinary act. Now, had to follow is a very comedy way of looking at it. And uh, <laughs> they weren't an act at all. They were a real person. So let's try and take this out of stand up terminology. In, in comedy terms, if someone is blitzing it before you, like at, at Hot Water over the weekend, a few of the gigs I had to do, I had to follow Mandy Knight, who is as close to a bomb-proof comedian, just an explosion. Just, I mean, the audience, they literally, she was in the middle spot on a Saturday night and the audience were on their feet. Like, I mean, it was it was incredible. And I'm there in the wings going, oh, God, I've got to follow this. And, you know, that's that's scary. So as a comic, you might think, oh, I've got a hard act to follow. That's where we get that expression, of course. So if you've ever done, um, some of you might have done sportsman's dinners or something, where the act that you've had to follow is simply an incredibly famous sports person. Who knows? If you're lucky, maybe they're doing a bunch of jokes that have been written for them, or even some old jokes that definitely kill every time. And you're there watching it, having a very different flavour of like, how can I, this is a different tone. 
Well, at this charity board, I had the act that I had to follow was one of the most passionate and engaging speakers and talking about one of the most kind of, I mean, awful, horrifying and uh, sort of optimism and anger despite awful circumstances. This lady was called Yasmin Sharif. And she is the, I don't know, the director. She is something high up in an organisation called Education Cannot Wait. And you can find them at, she is the director. Um, you can find them at educationcannotwait.org. And they are a global fund for education in emergencies. And they are either at the UN or something to do with the UN. Um, the, the details slightly elude me because the passion with which Yasmin spoke I, I, this isn't this isn't a, a, a promotional plug for a charity. Although the work they do is is fantastic, they they reach over a million children in some of the world's worst crises, and they support the idea of taking vulnerable children in difficult situations and those inverted commas difficult that might be war torn, corrupt environment. You know, it's awful, awful. Some of the world's worst, most challenging places to live, and making a difference to them in terms of education. This is not simply a plug for them, but in a stand up. In a, in a kind of an audience way, the way that Yasmin spoke with phenomenal passion about this incredibly difficult topic. And the story she was telling was uh, visiting migrant children in Greece in, in refugee camps in the worst conditions. And Yasmin was talking very passionately about angrily demanding of the authorities and of the people of the authorities in Greece, many of whom want to help but are unable for numerous reasons. Um, and she talked so passionately. Now, obviously, part of me is 99% of me is, is gripped and wrapped by this, this story and, um, and how genuinely meaningful it is. And the way in which she told it was, it was just extraordinary. And 1% of me was thinking, Jesus, how am I going to follow this? <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Now I'm going to go on and talk about how mm, comedy's hard and here's what we can learn from it. Um, it all went well, thank God. <laughs> but I just wanted to, to sort of reflect on that. And I suppose the wider point is what we can learn from other forms. Um, you'll know that I'm a fan of RuPaul's Drag Race and I'm very excited to see some uh, British comedians are going to be uh, on the RuPaul's Drag Race UK. There's going to be some guests and repeating judges. I think Graham Norton's doing it. I think Alan Carr's doing it as well. Um, I'm a big fan of Drag Race and I'm a, there's, a, <laughs> there's a, a gear shift. Big fan of Drag Race. And you have heard me say on the podcast before, comedians can learn a lot from drag queens. We can learn a lot from performers in different genres we can probably learn a lot from concert pianists if we only knew how to interpret it. I suppose watching a show like Drag Race gives gives you a lot of backstage, behind-the-scenes information as people are tussling with trying to express themselves, their true selves, through a character which they have contrived. And that is, you know, that's like a very extreme metaphor for some aspect of stand-up. Um, I also just... I just think that we can probably learn from speakers who are nothing to do with stand-up. Now, I get lots of emails from people who enjoy this show and who, I mean, the one that always sticks in my head is the guy who said, I'm a dentist, I'm a, a, lecture, a lecturer to dental students and I'm getting a lot out of the podcast. I always remember thinking, my God, wow, you know, that's, that's so exciting. Of course, I'm just merely sort of putting this in as a reminder to me and to us all, we can learn from people in a huge variety of, of of different 
situations, different professions. It's very easy to think that, oh, comedy, hardest game in the world. You know, we've got it tough. I'm, for, You know, I've always imagined comedy. It's like trying to write a novel while people punch you. You know, it's hard. It's, hard. it's not as hard as directing a charity for, for refugee children. Come on. But it's... There is, there is a lot to learn. For all that I swank about thinking I do a hard thing and people learn from it, it is always good to be reminded that I can learn so much more from everyone else than they can learn from me. So that's all I wanted to say. So you can certainly go to theirworld.org and you can go to educationcannotwait.org and look at the work that they're doing there. Um, I hope to be involved in some small way with some of that work that sort of it made a really big impression on me. But the point that I'm making um, is not simply that those charities are excellent, which they are. The point that I'm making from a stand-up perspective is that there is so much to learn from so many other disciplines. What can stand-up learn from Kung Fu? or plastering, <laughs> you know, those those are my two go-to things that I can't do. <laughs> I can't do Kung Fu, absolutely cannot skim a wall. Um, so, I yeah, just to, there, there we go, there we go. That probably sounded a bit serious and heavy, I didn't mean it to, but the point I'm making, the lighter point, is that there's so much stuff out there to learn from, isn't there? Drag, plastering, Kung Fu, uh, a, a human rights lawyer, and I mean, there's got to be four other things, <laughs> if not four million. All right, that'll do for now. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed this episode. I did enormously. I, I'm so excited about the ones I've got in the can now. Birdman, Paul Smith, um, uh, who have we got? Russell Hicks. It's so good. And, oh, this is final thing. Congratulations if you've listened this far. Join the Facebook group because there is a post on there where I reveal the guest of episode 300. And it's me. And uh, I am not going to interview myself, but I am in cahoots with some uh, excellent comedians who are friends of the pod. And uh, they are going to put their questions to me uh, in a series of interviews. And I'm going to chop them all together and put them in one episode. Should I reveal this? Yes, I'm only revealing it to those of you that bothered listening this far, which I know from the data isn't all of you. So um, uh, if you would uh, like to join the Facebook group, you can find the big mega post there. There's about 110 comments on it currently. Um, and uh, I will, I'm not going to promise to answer all of them, but if you've got a burning desire, if you've got a thing that you think it would be interesting to try and pin me down on, uh, there's a lot of are you happies in there already. And someone, I think it was uh, Nikki De Palma, commented, yes, but are you really happy? <laughs> um, there's lots of fun stuff on there. So uh, now is your chance, and uh, that'll do for now. Remember, comedianscomedian.com slash insiders to get hold of the extras from... Um, from not only are here, but all of the stuff from the from the upcoming interviews with Hicks, Smith, and Birdman. I've got those are all about two hours long, so bags of extras coming along on the private feed soon as well. Bye bye. Mm-hmm.